Southwestern family of companies welcomes you to the Action Catalyst. With each episode, our diverse and amazingly accomplished guests share their insights and inspirations to help us ignite our own. So let's invest attention together to breathe, to reflect, and refocus, and defeat the voice that we call Mr. Mediocrity. Then let's enjoy moving forward to make a positive difference in our world. Legendary University of Tennessee coach and leader Pat Summit famously used to say, nobody cares how much you know until they know how much you care. Pat's caring attitude motivated her to create a formula for success and leadership in life called the Definite Dozen. These principles served as the foundation of her program for decades. Pat Summit was a coaching and leadership superstar, the stuff of legend. The Pat Summit Leadership Group was formed to spread the words and teachings of Pat Summit. Using film, educational programs, and publishing, the Pat Summit Leadership Group uses Pat's definite dozen to help leaders of all ages find personal and professional success. The question now is, will you claim what success looks like for you? Don't settle for mediocrity. Do what Pat did. Win at life and change the world. Get started at patsummitleadershipgroup.com. On today's episode, we speak with Joan Cronin, speaker, author, and University of Tennessee Women's Athletic Director Emeritus, who led alongside the legendary coach Pat Summit with 10 NCAA titles and 24 SEC tournament championships during her tenure. She is now the board chairman of the Pat Summit Leadership Group, where she works to carry on Pat's mission and legacy and pave the way for a new generation of female athletes. We hope you enjoy. How are you? I'm wonderful. How about yourself? I'm great. Yeah, you know, it's funny. We'll start off. Both my parents are are UT graduates, actually. Oh, great. Yeah. I love people with orange blood. That's right. Yeah, Yeah. I love it. I know we've got such a, a storied career. We'll, we'll talk a little bit about your relationship with Pat Summit as well. But I really do enjoy talking a little bit about the foundation that helped you pursue the career and the path in life that you did. And I know you actually started in athletics yourself uh, as a tennis player. Is that right? Yeah, tennis would be my sport of choice. Uh, but my my career in wanting to make a difference in women's athletics actually started when I was 12. I grew up in Opelousas, Louisiana, Cajun country all the way. And, I, you know, Barbara Bandrell's song that she was country before it was cool to be country. Well, I was a tomboy before it was cool for women to be in sports. And I tried out for Little League Baseball. I was excited. I put my pad on my bat and man at City Park wouldn't let me play. And he offered to let me be a manager. He offered to let me be a scorekeeper, a cheerleader, but he wouldn't let me play. And, you know, Adam, I knew I was as good as little boys on the field. And I thought that's not fair. And at that time, I knew I wanted to be in a business that helped women learn to compete. Mm. Was it then that just naturally out of all the sports that you could play, tennis is what grew out of your time? Well, in, in high school, we didn't have many sports. We only had basketball and volleyball. I played those. I was a pretty good basketball player. I'm an awful volleyball player. But my home connected to City Park where the tennis courts were, and I always won the city championship. So it was, I like to win. So tennis was the sport that I, that I picked. You know, I'm fortunate enough to be in the Hall of Champions at LSU, Hall of Fame. And people say, well, Joan, you're in the Hall of Fame at LSU. What sports did you play? 
Well, they didn't have sports for women. I was intramural, ping pong, and tennis championship. And that's where we were. My mom and dad were absolutely wonderful. They, they were not athletic. They didn't understand sports, but they knew I loved it. And they always told me I could do anything I wanted to do. And then as I progressed, I was uh, fortunate enough to marry a, a wonderful gentleman who thought that I could do anything I wanted to do. And he really was my rock as far as supporting me and believing in what we did. I, I felt like we were a team. He was an exercise physiologist. He was an athlete, ran track at LSU, but loved women's sports also. So we, we did this journey together. And I will never forget the first game that I was athletic director at the University of Tennessee. We had won, and I came home, and I was all excited. And Tom said, well, you know, I think you ought to tell Pat that she could do this and this and change this play. And I said, honey, I'm going to do a lot of things in my life, but telling Pat Summit how to coach is not it. So uh, I love it. You know, I think that a lot of what you've done has set the tone for for sports for women across the the whole country, um, because Title IX is, is sometimes the reason we can have more of those uh, female sports. I never thought we needed a law to do what was right, but mm-hmm. athletics was such a male-dominated area that we did need a law. And I thought Title IX came along, along at a great time for me. I, uh, somebody said, do you remember when Title IX was signed? And I said, absolutely. I'd been to Washington meeting with senators and representatives but the actual date that Title IX was signed, my daughter was born on July the 2nd, 1972. And so I was really concerned about labor rather than the signing of, of Title IX. So, but I think as we progressed, that was such an impact. And to be able to be celebrating 50 years of Title IX, it's been so exciting and it's been such a journey. And, uh, you know, Tennessee has was been so supportive. They said yes to women before it was cool to say yes to women. So uh, I am a Cajun, but I do have orange blood. Mm. There's quite a bit of people skills required, I feel like, in the role of being an athletic director, because almost all of what you can do is, from my understanding, through influence, not direct control, right? Influence with the system in the school itself, influence with the coaches, so tell me if I'm wrong. No, that, that's a great analogy. You know, I always thought of myself, I thought of an athletic director as a person of influence, but a person, my job basically in simple words was to make the coach's job the best it could be, to make the athlete's experience the best it could be. And in doing that, teach a lot of lessons and represent the university well. Mm. Spent a lot of time raising money, spent a lot of time selling the program. I always told the staff, if they saw me sitting behind my desk three days in a row, I wasn't doing my job. What my job was to create an influence, to create people who were interested in what we were doing. I uh, I heard Jerry Jones say one time that uh, the definition of a leader, and there's a lot of definitions of a leader, but he said the definition of a leader was a person with a vision and had a sphere of influence to make it happen. So my job as an athletic director was have that sphere of influence, to be sure the president cared about what we're doing, be sure the governor knew what was happening, to be sure that the best donors wanted to be involved with what we were doing. Such good advice. 
Adam, if I had been president of Westinghouse, my product would have been a washing machine. But as athletic director, my product was women that went through athletics and got that experience and went on to be successful in life. I wrote a book that's called Sport is Life with the Volume Turned Up. And I think what you learn in sport is so, so important. Yeah. You talked about fundraising. And just real quick, because I know there's there's folks on on this podcast that a big, big part of their role is also doing that. Coming up through sports, there's not a lot of just training on how to raise money. I feel like you've got to learn it as you go, which sounds like that'll be part of the epitaph one day that you'll have on your, you've learned a lot as you went. Absolutely. You know, and there weren't, there weren't many women role models. I used to tell Coach Dickey, Doug Dickey, who was our men's athletic director, and I told him, you raise money out of the seat of your pants. If you want to sit here, this is what you pay. When you think about big time college athletics, a lot of their financing comes from incentives to have good seats. In our case, I had to raise money out of the heart. You know, I, we had plenty of seats. So I wanted to, I wanted people to really understand who we were. But you know, to be successful, you have to surround yourself with really good people. And some of the administrators that I was able to surround myself with were really good. And I tried to just guide them and get out of their way and say, Let, let's do it. But I always felt like I wanted to be an asset. I wanted women's athletics to be an asset to the university, not somebody that always had their hand out and said, you have to do this. Mm. You know, you, you did raise a tremendous amount, which then helped support a lot of the facilities for, for the women at UT. You know, and from the outside in, you know, when we talk about you, when we talk about Pat Summit and that winning track that, that you had for all of those years. From the outside in, it, it could just look like, oh, they, they never had any uh, roadblocks or challenges. It was just sailing all those years. I always want to know from, from your perspective, what were some of those moments where a little bit of doubt creeped in? What were some of those moments that you had during your tenure where you really encountered some roadblocks or some challenges? You know, one of uh, Pat's definite dozen, which I absolutely loved, was left foot, right foot, breathe. And sometimes and as we got to these hurdles, I had to say left foot, right foot, breathe. We're going to get through them. But, you know, we had such a great product and uh, we had people were, that were interested. The other one, a definite dozen, is that you have got to work hard. You know, I'm going to try to outwork you and be, be the one that's there. And, uh, you know, we would go places and people would say, I, you know, I can't believe y'all are averaging 16,000 people at a women's basketball game. And I said, you don't know how many chicken dinners Pat and I have spoke at to promote what we're doing. Never turn down an opportunity to sell our product. And that was what one of the things that I loved being having a partnership with Pat is she was willing to do that. You have some coaches that think the only thing they're supposed to do is be on the basketball court. But Pat understood the big picture. I understood the big picture. And we were doing more than just playing basketball. Yeah. For everyone that, that isn't as familiar with the whole history on that side, when you came over from, it was at Charleston, that when you mm -hmm. transferred back over to University of Tennessee. Absolutely. Prior to Charleston, you were the basketball coach at University of Tennessee brief for, for a, a few years. Is that right? Absolutely. And, uh, it was really in the beginning of time. <laughs> and uh, and we, I was a basketball coach, and we had been, there had been a club team before. 
and played two games the season before. So I kind of got to start their program. But, you know, I, I always knew that my strengths were not in coaching, but they were in the bigger picture. I liked the bigger picture. But at that time, most athletic directors had had experience coaching. Let me tell you a little story about the College of Charleston, which is unique. I told you my daughter was born in 1972 when we signed Title IX. We also moved to Charleston two weeks later for my husband Tom to take a job at the Citadel. And I had a two-week-old and a 19-month-old. So life was pretty crazy and busy, but I still had this passion that I wanted to have women's athletics. So I made a cold call to the president of the College of Charleston. And I said, sir, you need to have women's athletics. They just passed a law. It's time that, that we do something here. And I was either a really good negotiator or a really bad one, I'm not sure. But I walked out of his office as volleyball coach, basketball coach, tennis coach, and AD. And fast forward 10 years, fortunately, I was able to surround myself with some great people. And we were uh, named the number one program in America at that level by Women's Sports Foundation. So that was that was pretty special. That's extraordinary. And then Tennessee came knocking on our door and said, would you come back as athletic director? And of course, that's what we did. I love it. And Pat and I's partnership went back to, we were both recruiting the same girl in Charleston at the time, and she came in town to recruit her. We went to lunch, and she said, Joan, the AD's job at Tennessee is coming open. Would you consider applying? And so she actually recruited me to go back to Tennessee. So that's that's really where our partnership in trying to build an athletic program at Tennessee. And she helped me so much, not only in doing what she did in basketball, but she she was such a good person with all the other sports. She took the time to meet with other coaches. She took the time. Many of our fans on, on the podcast remember Monica Abbott, one of the best pitchers ever in softball. Well, I can remember Pat meeting with Monica, convincing her that she needed to come and help us start a softball team. So Pat was instrumental in that partnership in so many ways. It reminds me so much of, you know, when you when you read these books, like some of the ones Phil Jackson wrote, it almost always in a, in a championship series, right? Not just a yeah. one-off victory. It seems like the, the team aspect goes all the way up through administration. Absolutely. It, it just seems like it's not always so common to have it go all the way through administration. Well, it, you know, I think part of it was we all worked together and we had a dream. ESPN walked in my office one day and said, why are the Lady Balls so successful? We have the right people to make it happen. Never took it for granted. Hard work was there, but we needed everybody's support to go forward. When did, in the work with Pat, when did that definite dozen come about? When was that articulated? Probably about midway, uh, Sally Jenkins, who is a wonderful sports columnist and a good friend, wanted to write a book about Pat. And we had been preaching those things, but she said, let's sit down and write what, what is your philosophy and why? And that's what, uh, how we developed. And Pat and Sally worked really hard on that definite dozen. And it, and it's been a, a cornerstone. It, it's so well done. And, you know, my my goal is that Pat's definite dozen and John Wooden's pyramid 
or the Bible of people in sports. That these are the things that good coaches, good athletic directors, great athletes need to know and do. You know, we talk about what motivates people quite often. And for a lot of people out there, the motivations can be quite simple and maybe surface level what they can buy or have by the end of the year. But some of the folks who really seem to make the biggest change, that motivator tends to be legacy and something that's what they're going to be leaving behind uh, even when they complete their time. And I know Pat Summit uh, isn't with us today, but you think of the legacy that the two of you and, and really that that team that you all put together created. And we now have the Pat Summit Leadership Group and a, a foundation. Is that right? That's exactly right. The Pat Summit Leadership Group is so special because our job is to promote that legacy of Pat. And, and just like I said, I want the definite dozen and the pyramid to be the cornerstone of what, what we're doing. The Pat Summit Foundation, which I'm chairman of, is uh, designed to, when Pat was diagnosed with Alzheimer's, she walked into my office and we thought, we knew she was struggling, but we all thought it was from the medication for arthritis. She was having some trouble. And she looked me straight in the eye and she said, Joan, I've just been diagnosed with dementia, Alzheimer's strand, early stages. And I had never dealt with anyone with Alzheimer's. And early stages, I was thinking cancer and we, we, we can cure this. And so I said, well, Pat, you know, that's good. It's early stages. And she said, no, early stages means I'm young and it progresses faster. Mm. And then I said, well, we're going to say you have dementia because that seems to be more acceptable. And we'll, we're going to go in and battle this. And she looked at me again and she said, no, we're going to say exactly what I have. I have dementia, Alzheimer's strand, early stages. And then she said something that's been really significant in my life to follow her death was I want to form a foundation and I want this foundation to focus on finding a cure for Alzheimer's and helping with the caregivers. And that's what the foundation has continued to do over the last five years. We have a Pat Summit Clinic at the University of Tennessee Hospital, which is renowned for its research and its treatment of patients. We're getting ready to write a book that's going to be Pat Summit's game plan, and it's going to be designed to help caregivers in how they have to deal with that disease. So it's, it's an exciting time. And you said it so well to develop a legacy. You know, I, I don't want Pat's legacy to just be a disease. So we need the Pat Summit leadership group to show what a leader she was. She also wanted us to, to find a cure. So we're going about it as best we can. It's really incredible. I mean, many people have successful careers and lives. And uh, what I think you've accomplished and Pat is difficult to do, which is, you know, have a life of, of success, which in the sports world means uh, winning championships, yeah. right? But I think it's so important when people choose to play a bigger game. And uh, I, I always like to ask guests this, but when you hear the word success, how do you define that? That's a great question. Yes, we won eight national championships. And that's unbelievable that we could do that. But what the most important factor, if you talk about winning and success, is we went to 18 Final Fours. Coaches dream and ADs dream about going to one Final Four. And we had the privilege of going to 18 and winning eight of them. 
So that's that's success because it's it's not just one event. But I define success personally and and professionally is making a difference in young people's lives. Luke twelve forty eight says, "To whom much is given, much is required." I feel so blessed, and but I, and I want to give back. So I think that's what is fun about doing the things we're getting to do. Well, I think we'll have hopefully a lot of young women listening to this episode. And what little advice might you give to a young starting athlete, maybe someone who's in high school uh, earlier in their career? What are a couple of pieces of wisdom? Well, uh, we just did a program uh, for all of the female athletes at the University of Tennessee. And Benita Fitzgerald, who has been a very successful female entrepreneur, president of the Women's Sports Foundation, gold medalist Olympian in the hurdles. And she said something to all, all of our athletes. She said, you know, one day I was sitting in the middle of Tom Black track. I'd had a great workout. I was working with my coaches. Tennessee had given me an opportunity to go to school my fifth year where I could get my engineering degree. And the Olympics were coming up. And she said, I sat there and I thought, why not me? Why not me? Why can't I be the one that wins the gold medal? And she did it and went on. So I think you have to believe in yourself. And I think you have to be prepared as you go forward. You just just can't wake up one morning and say, I'm going to be success. You got to work hard at being prepared and surround yourself with great people. But I think that, that that's really important to think, why not me? I love that. You know, Adam, I, I do a, a good bit of public speaking. And one of the things that I talk about is people who don't need last names and why. Mm. And uh, being in Tennessee, I use Dolly Parton. Yeah. And, uh, you know, Dolly's a great actress, a great singer, but she gives back. And that's why people love her. And, and she is so adored and she doesn't need a last name. The other person that'll in Tennessee that we all love and doesn't need a last name is Peyton. You know, and Peyton was a great quarterback and a great athlete. But you know why he was successful? He had the most attention to detail of anybody I had ever worked with. Hmm. He probably watched more film, but you would not believe the detail. Then, of course, we have the name Pat. You don't have to say Pat Summit. You don't have to say in in the sports world. If you say Pat, most people are going to the first thing they're going to think of is Pat Summit. And we all know she won the eight championships, went to all the Final Fours, and very successful. But you know why people love Pat? She was probably the most humble person I've ever worked with. Mm. The night of her celebration of life, 96% of the athletes that she had coached over four decades came back. And I told them two things. The one thing that she would be most proud of is that every young lady that she coached got a degree. Every young lady that she coached for four years got their degree. And then number two, that they needed to remember that they would never meet anybody that had won more awards, more had more success, but they also wouldn't meet anybody that was more humble than Pat Summit. If you think about giving back, you think about attention to detail and being prepared, and you think about being humble, what else could we ask for? Uh. Such good wisdom. You know, just as a real basic uh, question, but what's a book that you've read and maybe it's recent on leadership or something that where it's helped you with the, the work that you've done as an AD, as a coach that, that's had particular influence or impact? 
I'm a book on tape person. I'm always listening to a book on tape. So podcasts are wonderful for me. <laughs> and uh, but you know, I love all of John Maxwell's books, obviously. And he's I, I had him come in and and speak to our our, our athletes a lot, and I, and that was really special. But you know, my answer would be uh, don't just read one. Mm-hmm. But I think I kind of like sport is life with the volume turned up. I could read. This has been a really wonderful interview, Jan. Appreciate you making time to be on with us and share your wisdom and a little bit of Pat's wisdom too. Well, you know, I, I, you talked about Title IX, you know, and what what my goals are is having opportunities for women and and being successful. Being the fifty years of Title IX and and talking about leadership in women's sports, I think about is Title IX working? You know, that was fifty years ago. Is it really working? And I don't, even though I majored in math at LSU, I don't have to do a statistical report and figure out all the stats. You know, all I have to do is get on an airplane. If I get on an airplane and I sit next to a couple and I say, I'm Joan Cronin, I'm athletic director emeritus at the University of Tennessee. And if they smile, the next thing out of their mouth are, I have a daughter or I have a granddaughter who... And they go on to describe the athletic ability of their daughter or granddaughter. When moms and dads want the same opportunities for their daughters and their granddaughters as they do for their sons and grandsons, Title IX is working. And I think that's happening. And I love to think that Pat and I were a part of making that happen. Well, really appreciate the legacy that you guys are leaving. Thank you so much, Jen. Appreciate you a ton. I appreciate it. Thank you. Call me when you need me. If you enjoy this podcast, please make sure to subscribe. And to stay updated on everything that the Action Catalyst is up to, make sure to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Action Catalyst Podcast and on Twitter at Catalyst underscore Action. And thanks for listening.